Lord God, we come to you this morning in the name of our Redeemer. We come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus, who, who by his death upon the cross redeemed your people for all time. Lord, as we come and reflect on the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for us, we pray that your spirit would give us cause to praise your name. We pray that your spirit would help us to understand our lives and the one who has redeemed them. Again, we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So this morning, as we begin, I'm going to... to, I feel constrained to point out a potential problem. And this is not a potential problem that is new. Um, This has been a problem since like 20 minutes after the fall. Um, This has been around. But to highlight it, I'm going to need some participation. So I'm just going to first say, if you um, helped participate in the most recent short-length missions trip to the well, where we built the addition for worthwhile wear, like if you were swinging a hammer or painting or whatever on the job site, please go ahead and stand up for me just, and, and remain standing just for a moment, okay? Now, if, if you were part of the excellent kitchen crew that made and brought meals, do you have any idea how much a lunch is welcome when it's like 8 million degrees and you've been working all morning? So if you, but if you're part of the kitchen committee, go ahead and, and, and stand you know, that, that, that helped make and bring the food. Great. Th- this is the bunch of people that, that we had um, at the end that were standing up on the chancel. There were quite a number of them. Um, and now if you um, helped support financially those that went, go ahead and stand. Now, if you helped through prayer, you know, either praying for the well, praying for the short-length mission strip, or praying uh, for, for those that were going to work, go ahead and stand as well. There's a lot of you. Okay, you guys can go ahead and sit down. Just, just look at that. Now, I, I'm going to, to say in the four years that I've been one of the pastors here, I can tell you that if we did the same experiment, but we talked about, uh, you know, if, if you're a Sunday school teacher, please stand, or, or, or if, you're a, um, if you're in the choir, please stand, or, or if you um, uh, uh, help with, you know, what we used to call judgment house, but of course we don't anymore, we're calling controlled, please stand. You know, it doesn't matter what the thing is. But the folks at Lydie's Church participate. They give of themselves. They're doers. That's a wonderful thing. But it presents a potential problem that we're going to look at today. You see, sometimes when we are doers of the gospel, and we understand that the doers of the gospel is because the Lord Jesus has loved us, has given his life for us, has redeemed us from the power of sin and death, and we follow him, and because of what the Lord Jesus has done in his great love for us, we're motivated to do things 
following him wherever he leads. That's a good thing. The potential danger is that we confuse our doing with the message of the gospel. Sometimes we, we, we confuse what we're doing in response to what God has done for us. And instead we say, well, this is what makes me good or righteous or pleasing in God's eyes. Um, the, way, the way we might think about it is, you know, of course, we're going to give lip service and we're going to say, yes, yes, I know Jesus is important. I know that he died for my sins. But functionally, on a day-to-day basis, I kind of just rest on the good things that I've done. And I, I know that the good things maybe outweigh the bad, or that's my own thinking, or, or in my, um, you know, as you look around, you're, you're tempted to say, well, I know my good things are more than that person's good things, right? And, and so the end result is that we confuse the doing of the gospel, that is to say, the result of God's great love for us that motivates us to go and love others, we confuse that for the central message of the gospel. We cannot do that. The message of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus has redeemed us. It is redemption that is found only in him, and we can't do it. Now, as I, as I use that word again and again through the morning, I feel like I need to define redemption. Because if we're not careful, it's, it's one of the, the words, as Pastor John used to say, kind of on the wallpaper of our mind, and we're just not really aware of what it is or what it means. Um, so, so we say, that you know, what is redemption? Well, it's the, release of cap, it's the release of something from captivity on receipt of a payment. And in our lives, we see it, well, maybe I pray not always in our lives, uh, we see the second example, but I, I've got two examples that kind of illustrate it from life. The first is, is rather simple, and that is to say it's like a coupon, right? If you think about a coupon, if you have a coupon to Burger King for, for a Whopper or whatever you might have, the value of a Whopper is tied up in the little piece of paper. The paper itself is worthless because I'm told it's of low nutritional value. Um, but it has value in that when you go to Burger King and you present the coupon, the Whopper, or whatever it's for, is liberated, as it were, from the coupon. And there, there's a cost associated with it because eventually, somewhere along the line, somebody had to buy the coupon. But the other cost is they take it from you, otherwise you get free hamburgers for life, which they don't like. Um, the second example, right, that we could think of is, is a bit more uh, tied to the biblical picture of it, and it's the one I hope that we've not experienced physically, and that is ransom, right? Um, you, you watch adventure movies or you watch you know, parts of the news and somebody's kidnapped and they're held for ransom, and they're held until a payment is made for them, until they're redeemed, right? That's the situation of our life. Because of the fall, where Adam plunged himself and all of his posterity into sin, we are held captive by that sin. And we have to be ransomed from it. 
That is the work of the Lord Jesus. That is the work of our redemption. This morning, we're going to take a look at the redemption of the Lord. And as we do so, as we we look at the way in which the Lord has redeemed his people through history, we cannot fall back into that temptation of resting in what we do. Rather, we need to let our words and our deeds be an overflow of the Lord's great love for us the fact that we've been redeemed in the Lord Jesus. Now, as we, as we think about this redemption, what I would have you do is picture in your mind a line. Maybe on the left side, you got a nice dot where the line starts, and then as it, as it goes to the, the right, uh, you know, it goes forever, okay? And in, on that line is all the events of human history, everything, from the, the, the consequential to the inconsequential. You know, birthdays, anniversaries, um, you know, everything that's ever happened is on that line. And as we think about that line, as we think about all of human history, we, we picture pretty early on that there's a significant marker there, and that's the fall, right? Now, I know that you guys have heard of the fall. I know that this isn't, you know, new to you, but we, we understand that... As Adam and his wife were created, they were created without sin. They they were created with the ability to do what was asked of them. But in the fall, their relationship with the Lord changed forever. And we can can understand the, the change in the way that the Lord responds to them. We could summarize the the relationship before by saying, listen, Adam. Mrs. Adam, she's going to be named Eve later. You do what I say, you live. You don't do what I say, you die. Of course, we know that that though he had the ability to listen to the Lord, Adam didn't. Um, We know that his wife didn't. And we know that there was judgment pronounced upon them because they could not, uh, because of their sin. And we see that in the pronouncement of judgment, you know, the Lord gives some, pronounces some to Adam, some to his wife, some to the serpent. When he's speaking to the serpent, we get a whiff of the change in relationship between God and, and his creation. There in Genesis 3.15, the Lord says this, and he's directing it to the serpent, And he says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here the Lord is promise, or the Lord is promising that one day somebody's going to be born of the, the woman who's going to take care of the sin issue. As we think about how the Lord is relating to his people, what he's saying is, Adam. This was the plan. You were to obey me, you're to fill the earth, you're to subdue it. And he was to do it on his own strength. After the fall, the Lord is saying in summary, listen, you're still to fill the earth and subdue it. You're to follow me, you're to be my people, and I will give you what is necessary so that you can. I will give you what is necessary to make you righteous. I will give you what is necessary 
to overcome the consequences of the fall. Well, how does, how does this get worked out? I mean, if, if, again, if you have in your mind this timeline that you, you could kind of move down the timeline, you move to Noah. And it's easy for us to, to think Noah is, a, is a, an instrument of, of God's wrath where everybody dies. But we need to remember a couple things. One is Noah was named Noah because his father thought he was going to be the one to take away the sin. And two, there's not a person in this room that isn't here because the Lord saved Noah. So as we look back on Noah, in our lives, he's just as much an instrument of God's redemption of each one of us as as he would be of wrath for those who weren't on the, on the ark. We could keep going down the line. We could get to Abraham. And the Lord makes specific promises to Abraham. What is, you know, he, he says, Abraham, well, Abram at the time, but Abraham, come follow me. Leave your family. Leave, leave everybody else. Bring your wife, and I'm going to put you in another land. And I'm going to give you the land. And I'm going to make your descendants as, as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the, the sand on the seashore, right? Um, and that's fine in so far as it goes, but Abraham can't accomplish this. And part of the reason he can't accomplish it is because he's old and he has no kids. And his wife is old and she doesn't have any kids either, right? So the whole point here is that Abraham is given the same task that Adam had to fill the earth, subdue it, right? Here's this land and have sons and daughters, Living, in, living on it. But we see here that the Lord hears the cries of Abraham and Sarah and gives them Isaac. Right? It, it's, it, this is not natural in the sense that they're well beyond childbearing years. And yet the Lord in His grace and in His provision redeems Adam. R- redeems Abraham thinking about how he is to fill the land. We could also look a little further along uh, the path of Abraham, and we see that when Isaac was a young, young man, the Lord says, Abraham, yes, Lord, take your son. And I'm sure he thought, well, I got two. At that point, he did. And he says, take your only son, which is kind of odd, that son whom you love. Take Isaac. The child you, you waited for for years and years and years. Okay, and throw him a party? No. Sacrifice him. Oh. And Abraham, in a journey that must have been agony, takes his son to Mount Moriah. And there again, we, we know the story. At the last moment, the angel of the Lord says, Don't harm the boy. And we see that a ram is substituted for Isaac. By the ram's blood, Isaac is redeemed. And it's effective, right? As, as we look at how the Lord is working in, in each generation through history, we see that, that his actions to give his people grace, to, to, give him, uh, to give his people the provision they need, it's effective. The ram worked. It saved Isaac's life. It didn't deal with Isaac's sin. It didn't deal with Abraham's sin. But in the moment, it redeemed him. 
We know, looking back, that this is a picture of the Lord saying to Abraham, I love you and am allowing your son to be spared because I'm not going to allow my son to be spared. And we could go on. We could, we could continue to look on that timeline. We could continue to look at, at Joshua and how people were brought into the promised land. We could look at judges and the way that the Lord delivered them from, from uh, foreign oppression. We could look at uh, some of the kings, the righteous kings, as the Lord administers the nation of Israel and rules it. And we could see that in, in each generation, the Lord, in small ways, redeems his people. The Lord, in small ways, gives them grace, mercy, enables them to live and follow him. And as we look on that timeline, as we look at these pictures, there's no greater Old Testament picture, in, in my opinion, than the Passover and the Exodus. And we remember that, that there, Israel is in bondage, right? They, they've got the people. When, when the Lord promised to Abraham, you're going to have a land and people, they've got the people. Hooray. They don't have the land. They're stuck in Egypt. As a nation, they're not very good. They're not very good at being a nation. They're not in control. They, they, they're enslaved. And there you see that the Lord leads them out. And the way in which he leads them out is through a miraculous set of signs that ultimately culminate in the Passover, where the angel of death flies over the, the, the homes, and the homes that have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he passes over. So these two actions, Passover and then the Exodus where they, they leave and they go through the Red Sea, serve as this reminder of who God is and how the Lord has worked to establish his people, to give righteous standing to his people and to enable them to follow him. How do we see it? We see it in the, even in the Ten Commandments. How do they start? The Lord says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Now here are the commandments. And even as we think of the whole law, we recognize that when Israel screwed up, when they sinned, they could offer sacrifices and still continue to be part of the assembly of God's people. These are small ways in which the Lord provides... For his people, so that they can come before him in good standing. But all of these, including Passover, including the Exodus, point to a future for them, greater deliverer. That's the Lord Jesus. We actually see that you know, Jesus himself describes how all of the Old Testament points to him. And we see it in various ways throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's less obvious. This morning we read from Isaiah 53. That's one of the more obvious ones. Right? Isaiah 53 is, is this picture of the Lord's suffering servant. And as we think about it, as we, as we think about how the people in Isaiah's day would have heard this, 
they would have looked back and they'd have seen the events of Judges. They would have seen the events of the Kings. They'd have seen the events of the Exodus. And they'd have thought about that. And they'd have said, okay, well, we're now a nation. We're now a people. What more does the Lord have to do? And, and probably they would have thought, well, you know, the Lord is going to make us more secure. Or the Lord is going to, to enlarge our borders. But at the same time, if you were in Isaiah's day and you were faithful to the Lord, you know that, that there's still an ongoing sin issue that has to be dealt with. How are these two things reconciled? And Isaiah 53 is a picture of that. It's a picture of a victorious individual, um, but don't think high and mighty, unstained, unblemished in victory. It's victory through humiliation and what looks like defeat. Look, look at, listen again to Isaiah 53, 1 to 3, just as we get a description of the Lord Jesus. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I don't know about you guys, but in the church where I grew up, there would be pictures um, that, that had this ruggedly handsome individual kind of sort of looking off into the distance with a beard, and, and the, the light, which was the glory of the Lord, would kind of peek down through the clouds and hit him, and he looked like a model. I, I don't think the artist read Isaiah 53. It gets worse. It says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. I can't even look at him. Right? He was despised, and we did not esteem him. That's the picture of the Lord Jesus. That's the picture of how the Lord is going to permanently establish his kingdom and also deal with sin. He's going to permanently establish his kingdom because as the scriptures say in Daniel and elsewhere, the Lord is going to give to the Son, to Jesus, an eternal kingdom that has no end. Right? Jesus himself says this as uh, part of his great commission. What does he say? He says, all authority is in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go. Where? To the ends of the earth. You know, baptizing, making disciples by baptizing and teaching. In short, the Lord Jesus is actually fulfilled and fulfilling what Adam was supposed to do. Fill the whole earth with the glory of the Lord. We see Jesus in his great commission give his disciples the instruction to do just that. But at the same time, we recognize that, that though Jesus is king and though he rules, it was harsh for him. Right? It, you know, the, the, the text, again, this is Isaiah 53. And just reading the words is difficult, but it says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
the Lord Jesus did not come and kind of clap his hands and say, okay, everything's going to be better. The Lord Jesus came and laid down his life. He was crushed because of our sin. Now, as we, as we wrestle with that, as we think about what that would, would look like, um, we say, well, what effect does it have? I mean, we've talked about, you know, that the Lord at, in times and seasons works to give grace to his people, works to, to redeem his people. Isn't this just another step in the process? Well, Isaiah 53 speaks to this. And just, you know, so you know, I think this is the only verse in the Bible you can wrap. Not that I'm going to try, but it says this. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. The Lord has caused our sin to go to fall upon the Lord Jesus. And we bear it no more. How do we understand this? Actually, I think the, the, the best way to think through it is in financial terms. If I were going to go buy a car, going to go buy a house, you know, I might borrow a sum of money to pay, you know, for this house or for this car, and then I'm in debt, right? I have a, I have a mortgage that I have to pay. And if I don't pay it, I lose the car or house or whatever it is that I bought with it, right? Um, I lose it because I, I am in debt to the bank. Well, in life, we all, because of Adam's sin and the sin we add to it, have a debt of righteousness that we can't pay. And it keeps growing day by day. And so if we're apart from Christ... We have to pay the debt, the debt we can't pay. And it means we have no life. I mean, it's true that we'll continue to walk and talk and, and you know, interact with others, but, but we don't have any meaningful life. We don't have any abundant life, which is only found in the Lord Jesus. And so as we think about you know, our debt of righteousness, as we think about um, the Lord's delivering us through the son who was slain, as we think about our, our sin being put on the Lord Jesus, the, the words of Jesus on the cross become pregnant with meaning. When he says, it is finished and dies, he's saying, the wrath of God has been poured out. And I have little kids, and I tell you that when a cup gets poured out, there's no more water in it. It's all over the floor and everywhere around. It's done. In the same way, when the wrath of God is poured out, it is finished. There is none left for you. There is none left for me. This is the gospel. And it's the same gospel throughout history whereby God's people have, have believed, have, have received the, the, the blessing that they have, they, they've received from the Lord. They, they've received the righteousness. They've received the help from the Lord. And they are redeemed because of Christ. 
Now, I have no doubt in a room of this size that some have, I hope, patiently been waiting, but, but have been thinking, man, why doesn't he just tell me what to do? Well, I've intentionally left any specific action out because simply stated, what Christ has already done is all the doing that needs to be done. What Christ has already done is all the doing that needs to be done. Now, no doubt, we, we're still called to faith-filled obedience, right? The, the, the short-length mission trip that we, we stood up for or, or what a, you know, many of the other activities that we participate in, those are good things to do as an outflowing of what the Lord has done for us. There are things to do, uh, yes, but at its foundation, if this sermon or, or any sermon isn't grounded in the redemption that the Lord Jesus has established for us, has purchased for us at the cost of his life, then we must view such a, such a sermon with suspicion. And if it becomes a to-do list in its outlook and framework, then it's not the gospel but it carries a legal stench of death because I just simply add things you can't do if it's apart from Christ. So this brings me back to the original problem, potential problem, I stated at the beginning. We are a wonderful people full of wonderful doers, and I praise the Lord for that. We must recognize the challenge then and understanding our actions in relationship to Christ. We must remember that we're saved by grace as Jesus' righteousness is given to us. We need to guard against thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. I could stand here and kind of throw back my shoulders and, and with a little bit of a hop in my step, remember that I too went on the short-length missions trip um, you know, I could, I could think about how wonderfully and nobly I served. That's not true. I actually got sick halfway through the first. And, anyways, but we could think about it. But as I, as I present that, if I'm not careful, the longer I, I think in that way, the longer that is my mindset, the more I diminish my own sin and the more I diminish the work of Christ. We need to recognize that this sort of understanding that we work because Christ loved us and died for us is more than just a, well, you know, a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his, his steps. That's true, but this, is, this goes beyond that. Because if good works were required and they were left for you or for me to do, we just wouldn't do them. We would end up being happy, content, being isolated, alone, seeking trivial pleasures without any perceived risk. Today, hear the gospel that the Lord Jesus, who was truly God and truly man, lived, died, and rose again on our behalf. He has done all the doing that is necessary. As a result, 
We need to continue going forth. We need to continue doing. But we need to do so in light of what the Lord has already accomplished. We need to proclaim his gospel through our words and our deeds. Amen.